seriously? So, all right. Well, is there anything you can do about that? Because we really need to do some laundry. Laura, will you please give me a more grateful heart? Honey, my car. Okay. It's a season of Thanksgiving. Be grateful for the things that we have. Um, I saw that, and obviously, you know, in this season that we're in, it's easy when we're busy to take things for granted. And, um, you know, yes, we take time on Thanksgiving Day, maybe, to give thanks for all the things that we've been given, but obviously we want to continue to do that and not take the things for granted that we are so freely given and so freely blessed with. Okay. The book of Habakkuk, we're going to finish it up today, chapter 3, and this has been a short study, but like I said, I think that it's been a really timely one for us as we look around the world, especially in our country, and we see so much uh, evil, so much brokenness, so much despair, and that's exactly what Habakkuk was looking at, at his country in Israel, as he was seeing the moral decay of the nation and of his people, and he just got so frustrated that he had to take, uh, take those questions to God. Uh, the great general Napoleon once said, I never worry about what I'm going to do if I win a battle, but I always know exactly what I'm going to do if I lose one. And Habakkuk had been told by God that a battle was coming. And not only was it coming by the form of a brutal and you know just wicked people in the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, but that they were going to lose the battle. And this wicked nation is going to be God's tool to bring judgment to the house of Israel because of their wickedness, because of everything that they were rebelling in. Um, and God said, listen, I have to do something to bring my people's heart back to me. And Habakkuk agrees, yes, something has to be done. That's the question that he took to God. God, why aren't you doing anything? But after God tells him what's in store, he starts to protest. He starts to get a little bit upset. How are we going to survive this? I mean, this country is going through the world. They're just devouring everything as they go. But then he does something really important, probably the most important thing in chapter 2. And I didn't dwell on this enough, but he goes to the tower to pray. He goes intentionally. He said, I'm going to station myself in the tower and see what God's going to say to me, the words that he's going to give me to tell the people, because I don't have the words to give them. And they're not going to believe me. They're not going to want to hear it. So I need your words. And, you know, when we don't 
understand what God's doing in life, when we're confused, when we look around and we say, God, it doesn't make any sense to me, we need to seek him. We need to be intentional about praying, about being in his word, about worshiping. If we pursue him intentionally and expectantly, that's another thing. We can pursue him intentionally, but we need to also be there with expectation that he is going to give us an answer. Um, And if he doesn't give us an answer right then, then we keep going back because he wants us to. He wants to hear from him. And if we pursue him intentionally, he will guide you. And you'll come away with a peace that doesn't make sense to the world. Okay, they're going to look at you and they're say, that is weird to me, I don't get it, why you have such peace. But we talked about it in Philippians, right? That his peace, not our peace, not anybody else's peace, but his peace, which surpasses all of our understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But do we believe that? Do we live like that is true? Um, it's what Jesus did when he walked this earth. He would go away often into desolate places and he would pray. He would talk to God. And I just think it's interesting because the disciples came to him and they didn't ask him, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. Or don't, you know, God, can you teach us how to heal people? Or to, you know, produce that food. Like that was a really cool miracle when you produce food for all those people. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because they knew that's where his power came from, was in those moments of prayer and speaking to God. You know, we only bring one thing to the table when we pray to the Lord. When we show up, when we pray, when we report for duty, which is what prayer is, we bring faith. We bring our faith to the table. If we approach him in faith, because he's the one that controls everything, then he will guide us. He will speak to us. We have to show up with expectation. And God tells Habakkuk, says, listen, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by his faith. You're going to have to live by faith. What I've told you is going to happen. It's going to come to pass. I'm not lying. You're going to have to wait for it, even if it seems slow. And also, I want you to write it down so people can understand it. Like, you need to make it plain so there's no misinterpretation. And if there's one thing in our day and age that we have quite a bit of, it's misinterpretation. Um, Because people are not using God's word as the standard. They're using their experiences. uh, They're using their feelings. Uh, If you ever hear somebody say something like, well, I just think that God would, or I just feel like God, no. That's not the way we need to go about it. We need to look at his word, not what we think, not what we feel, but what we know, and that's what comes out of his word. God made it plain in his word. He made it easy to understand that we're supposed to live by faith. Then God gives back at these list of woes, these woes that are declared over the Babylonians, uh, but they're also called taunts. So they're not just God's descriptions of the Babylonians, but they're also uh, taunts that the people are supposed to take up against their captors to remind themselves of God's coming judgment. That not only are they going to be judged, but in the end, he is going to restore them and he's going to bring this, bring them back. That his purposes will prevail. You know, we've been given this book and we have a list of woes that we can pronounce over our enemy over the devil. And he is very quick to remind us of our past, of our faults, of our failures. But we know, because we've read the end of the book, that there will be a day when Satan will be judged eternally, sin will be judged eternally and done away with, and will be restored. God doesn't leave us without hope. The last verse 
in chapter 2 that we left off with was, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And this is a silence of reverence, but it's also a silence of acceptance. This is God's will. Um, So how can we have hope when it feels like God's will is going to do us in? Like that's what the people were going to be thinking when he relayed the news that the Babylonians were coming, that it looks like they were going to be wiped out. We can have hope because God is on the throne and seated right next to him is Jesus. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. If we're in Jesus Christ, he sees his son. And we're going to be saved and we're going to be restored. Our bodies, we're going to have glorified bodies. Amen. In that day. And it's going to happen. And when he's our goal, when we line up with his will for our life, even if it's something that we don't want to hear, we can have peace. We can set aside our protest and simply be in him. And that's what Habakkuk says at the end of chapter 2. So, into Habakkuk chapter 3. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. I have no idea if that's how it's pronounced. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. We're just going to, this is kind of a long one, so we're just going to take it section by section. It's titled a prayer, but what this actually is, what this last chapter is, is a song that he has composed. And sometimes the best thing that we can do in prayer is praise. Um, I can say just from personal experience that there are times where I do not have the words. I don't know what to pray. And so the best thing in those times is just to praise. And that's really what the book of Psalms is about. I mean, this is a group of songs that David had put together, as well as some others, um, that are just songs and praise unto God. They're prayers that are put to music. And when we don't know what to pray, we can always praise. That song that we sing where he says, I'm going to push through till every lie crumbles. I'm going to dance in the midst of the rain. I'm going to rest in the arms of the Father. I'm going to praise I'm going to praise your name. And that's what we should be doing. That's what Habakkuk is doing here in chapter 3. So here's your word for the day, Shigianoth. Uh, That's your word for the day. Since this is a song, what this actually refers to is how the song is to be performed. Uh, This is to be done as what they called a dirge or a lament. It's supposed to be very emotional and it's supposed to be sung in kind of a mournful tone um, because it's singing about what is happening, but at the end there's some hope. At the end, there's a word that is going to sustain them. It says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Job, doesn't it? If you remember back in the book of Job, God took three chapters to remind Job of his place. Job had been talking and talking and talking, and so did his companions. And in chapter 42, God finally wrapped up talking to him about who he was, where he fits in that place. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's what Job said. And that's really the way that Habakkuk is starting off this song. And 
it's realizing where we fit in the grand scheme of things. Um, it's amazing because God, creator of the universe, looks down into our lives and says to you and me that I love you and I want to have a relationship with you, but first we have to know where we fit into it. And, you know, this is really where faith starts. It's by saying you're God and I'm not. I recognize you and who you are and where I fit. I want to know more about you. I want to be able to trust you even when I don't understand what's happening. Um, here's some themes that he starts off with. First, he starts off by standing in awe. Uh, we overuse words in our culture today uh, like crazy, and I'm guilty of this too. I use the word awesome like way too much to describe. I mean, we use the word for, for God, we use awesome, and then I use that for, you know, like barbecue. This barbecue is awesome. So we overuse these words to the point where they lose their meaning. But we serve a creator and a warrior, Father God, who is truly awesome. In Psalm 66, 5, David writes, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. Habakkuk is, first of all, standing in awe of God. And then he's remembering God's power. When we're staring into the face of uncertainty, and we don't know what he's going to do, it does us good to remember what he's done, what he's done for us in our lives. Um, we just had Thanksgiving. Like I said, hopefully all of us took a moment to thank God, to be thankful for everything that he's given us, to remember his blessings, but we also need to remember his power. Um, we sang that, that song about God's power. And not only, you know, spiritually, but practically, the things that he has done in our lives, those testimonies to be able to remember back. And the people of Israel um, are having the hand of God's favor removed off of them. And they're going to have to re remember God's power to sustain them as they go into captivity. And lastly, he's praying for their return. Um, and he's praying for God's mercy um, the early church had a word that they would use when they would greet each other, and they would say, Maranatha. Um, I went to a private school out on the Kansas side called Maranatha Academy, and Maranatha basically just means come quickly. Lord, come quickly, come back quickly. And Habakkuk is praying for the people's return prophetically and for God's mercy. Uh, today we pray for the Lord's return. And when the Lord returns, that's going to be a mercy to the church and all the people who are calling upon his name today. And mercy is what we're praying for. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Uh, we deserve punishment for our sin. Jesus took that punishment. He is the mercy that we receive. Uh, I read this story on the Civil War once it ended and General Lee surrendered. Lincoln was giving an address from the balcony at the White House. And at the end of his speech, Senator Harlan, uh, who is very, very well known in the story, says, what shall we do with these rebels? And so some of the vindictive people that were there in the crowd started to shout, hang them, hang the rebels. Um, that actually sounds pretty familiar, the people who were yelling, crucify him, when he said, what shall I do with Jesus? Kind of interesting. Um, and then his son, Tad, who was just 11 years old at the time, as people are saying, we should hang him, he says, no, no, Papa, not hang him, hang on to them. And he says, that's it. We don't need to hang him, we need to hang on to them. And that's what he's saying right here. Habakkuk is saying, God, hang on to us. Don't let us go. Remember mercy. 
And the prophet's struggling here, but the struggle, in the struggle, there's always growth. Uh, his faith is growing, and he's letting go of what he thought he knew of God and the way that he acted into accepting what he's done. Uh, he really would have preferred to God intervene directly in this situation instead of it going the way that it's going to go with this evil people, with this foreign army coming into the land to be his tool of judgment. Uh, remember, there's a story about David, and David goes to his general, Joab, and he says, listen, I want you to go throughout the whole country, and I want you to count, I want you to take a census of how many fighting men we have. And Joab says, uh, David, that's a bad idea. Like, we shouldn't be concerned with how many men we have. God's the one that fights for us. So we don't trust in numbers. Trust me, that would be a sin to do that. And David said, I want you to do it. And so Joab goes out reluctantly, and he starts counting the people. And it said that he was so distressed by having to do this task that David sent him on that he didn't even count the tribes of Levi or Benjamin. He, come, he completely left out two tribes. He just had to stop. He's like, I can't do this anymore. This is wrong. Because the number that he gave David when he came back was one and a half million men that could fight. One and a half million men. That's a huge number. That's bigger than just about any other army that was coming their way at that time. And when David heard the number, he knew that he had sinned because he was trusting in his own numbers, his own power. And so the prophet, the prophet comes in and the prophet Gad, and he says, David, you've blown it. Like, you know, you've blown it. And here's what's going to happen. God is going to give you three choices for your punishment. He said, you can either have three years of famine three years of famine, or you can have three months of running from your enemies, destruction by the sword of your enemies, or you can have three days of plague, which will be carried out by an angel of God. And so David says this, he says, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into the human hands. Don't let me fall into the hands of people, God. You are the one that is merciful. And so Habakkuk's distressed because they're about to fall into human hands. <clears throat> And the word that report that he uses here at the beginning of chapter 3 um, is also translated fame. And he's asking God to revive his fame. Do the things that you're famous for, God. The things that we know you can do that you did in the past. In the midst of the years, make it known again. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Do the things that you did, God, when you delivered us from evil. When you took us into the promised land and you marched before us and defeated our enemies. I know we need correction. I know we need punishment. But Lord, please have mercy on us. So this is how the song starts. And really, this is what happens when we worship. In worshiping, we're reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done. Um, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a, a message. And it's, a lot of it's going to have to do with worship. Uh, and I'm excited about that because I th our folks do a really good job leading us into worship. I am so thankful for them. Um, and we have like 20, 25 minutes to worship God when we're here. And hopefully you're worshiping throughout the week too. But we get to lift his name high. We get to focus on him and go all out. Um, you know, it just always strikes me as a little bit strange because here on Sundays, stadiums across the country are going to be packed with people that are going crazy. They're doing all kinds of foolish things to cheer and cheer on worship their teams. But then sometimes we come to church and we just kind of stand still and we don't worship him fully for who he is. And so as this starts out, he's remembering 
who God is and what he's done. Uh, there's an old hymn that says, To God be the glory, great things he has done. And we stand in awe of who he is and what he does in our lives presently. Um, we look back and we look forward at his promises, but we also look up presently. And that's what we do when we come and worship. All right, verse 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He stood and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on the chariot of your salvation? Saying, Lord, in the days of old, you led us, you came forth. Uh, this is his physical presence in their history, in his battles, delivering them. Um, Taman and Paran are down in the region of Sinai, and this is where they began as a nation. This is where God called them together at Mount Sinai when they met there, and they worshipped them, uh, worshipped him there, and he sent them out. And it harkens back to something that Moses said to the people when he was giving his final blessing in Deuteronomy 32. Moses said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So he's praising God's sovereign power. And he's also praising for his ability to provide a second exodus. Like he's going back to the first exodus. And he's also believing God for his ability to bring them out of a second exodus from Babylon. So remembering what God's done in your life can sustain you through difficult seasons. It's just thankfulness. It's just gratefulness, right? Being grateful for the things that he's done in our lives. And we should do that often. One of the things that um, I think is a good practice at the end of the year before we head into the new year is just looking back at some of the things that we've had the thing we'd have had the opportunity to do or the things that God's done for us throughout the year. And just remember that with thankfulness as we move into 2022. Then he goes into God's use of nature in their deliverance. Um, as he was leading them out of Egypt, he led them out by a pillar of fire, right? And then also a cloud by day. Um, it's interesting because in the desert, it gets pretty cold at night. And he led them out by a pillar of fire. And then during the day, obviously, it can get pretty warm. And he was covering them with a cloud. He led them by a cloud. He shaded them from the extreme heat in the desert. So God was providing through nature, in fighting for his people. God split the Red Sea so they could walk across on dry land. Uh, there was a miraculous earthquake at Jericho when the walls fell down. And then there's an example in 1 Samuel chapter 7 where God thundered a mighty sound and the Philistines were thrown into confusion and the Israelites defeated them there. God was showing um, all of these heathen nations that he was the God of creation. He was actually the creator. He had power over it. Um, 
He is the creator, but he's also the warrior God who fights for his people. Um, There's a phrase that appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it is the, it's the word for God, the name for God, Jehovah Sabaoth. And it means God of the angel armies. Over 200 times in the Old Testament, this is used. When David went to fight Goliath, and the people of Israel, their army was on one hill, and they were scared to death from the Philistines, Philistines that were on the other hill. David came out and he said, you come to meet me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies of Israel, whom you have defiled, the God who fights for us. Sometimes it's an angel, sometimes he uses the forces of nature. Um, he did it in Egypt, obviously, with the plagues and the pestilence to free them, but he also used it to punish them in the wilderness. So he used it to fight for his people. He also used it to fight against his people. Um, all of creation accomplished his purposes. So he walks through the earth, and then he stands still. And when he does, the earth shakes and the mountains disappear. Here's what David wrote in Psalms 46. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge. He is the one that's in control of all of things in nature, no matter what it's doing. I think it's interesting because over time people have worshipped the mountains. They have looked at mountains as though they were fixed, as they are you know, something that is immovable, um, ancient. Uh, but it says here that these everlasting hills were sunk by his everlasting ways. He was in the one. He was the one that controlled it. Um, people worship the mountains, but we worship the one who created the mountains. Um, things may seem impossible, but we serve a God that... Um, overcomes the impossible. Uh, I think it's interesting. If you remember, um, there was an insurance company called uh, the Rock of Gibraltar Insurance, right? And they would always show that huge Rock of Gibraltar. Like, you can find security in our insurance company because we are like the Rock of Gibraltar. You don't remember that one? I'm probably dating myself a little bit here then. Okay, and this song is given to the people to help sustain them in their time of trouble. Um, And they're going to need to remind themselves of his power because we have a tendency to forget, don't we? We have a a short memory when it comes to God's goodness. Uh, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, he says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Basically, don't you remember? Have you guys forgotten? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the earth like a curtain, the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. By the way, he sits above the circle of the earth. That was before they had satellites, by the way. Everybody else, every nation in the world thought that the earth was flat. Some people still think it's flat. Says he sits above the circle of the earth. Then he makes reference to the tents of Cushan and Midian and how they were in affliction. These are the people that witnessed the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They marched through these people on their way to the promised land. They saw the power of God firsthand. 
And then he asked this rhetorical question, was your wrath against the rivers and the seas, God? And obviously the answer is no. He wasn't angry with the seas. He wasn't angry with the rivers. Nature was on an uproar on God's behalf because he fights for his people. And so nature was actually accepting God's commands and he uses these things to save them. People worshipped nature um, and they still do. You know, why people worship animals, I'll never know. Uh, why would you worship something that you can kill? You know, and uh, Egypt was famous for that. All of the animals that they had um, turned into idols. Uh, and God is using these means to let people know, I'm the creator of all things, and they're subject to me. Um, we talked about it a few weeks ago when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, that the same word he used when he said, peace, be still, is the same phrase that he used on the demons when they were trying to speak out. And he would say, peace. He would say, be muzzled, basically. And that's what he did to the storm, showing that he had the power over nature. Do we worship nature today? You bet we do. Um, there are laws on the books that protect nature, that protect animals more than people sometimes. Um, I read a story that just back in June, there was a guy in Florida that got sentenced to a year in prison because he was caught in a sting operation selling and, and buying endangered wildlife to people. Uh, and not just that, he had like skulls and skeletons and stuff like that that he was selling um, to people secretly. And so the police had created a sting operation because they wanted to bust him on protecting these endangered species. And so he's serving a year in prison, and yet we have violent offenders that just turn around and go free. It seems sometimes that we have more sanctity of life for animals than we do of humans. And so in those regards, yes, um, our society still worships animals. Um, and then, of course, we have lions and bears and eagles and things like that that people will worship today on television. <coughs> Football. No Chiefs football today. <clears throat> All right. Verse 9. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place and at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the heads of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And here again, the prophet is speaking of what God has done for his people and how he fights for them. Uh, I read lots of commentaries on this portion and what it spoke of. And there were lots of different opinions and different references uh, to God's power and the things that they symbolize. But I'll boil it down to just one verse, and that's verse 13, that he went out for the salvation of his people he went out for the salvation of his people and for his anointed one, uh, which is a reference to Jesus, to the Messiah. And he crushed the heads of the wicked. So God went out for the salvation to save his people, and he will do that every single time. Even when it seems like things are being destroyed, he is going out for our salvation. 
He crushed the heads of the wicked. For you guys who are Bible students, maybe that should make you think back to a conversation that Jesus had in the garden with Adam and Eve when he said that he was speaking of Satan, uh, the serpent, and he said, he's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. Like somebody down the line, one of your ancestors, Jesus, is going to crush his head. Um, God has fought for us in the past by offering us salvation. He fights for us currently in our struggles. It says that he is seated next to the Father, making intercession for us. He is praying for you and me right now. Uh, That should be a really encouraging thought when we go through hard times, that not only are we praying to him, but he's actually praying for us that we're going to make it. Um, He's not up there pacing the floors of heaven. Uh, He's not wringing his hands. Uh, He's praying for you and me. He knows that we're going to make it. And when I think about how God is a warrior God and how he fights for us, uh, I'm reminded of what it says in Romans 8. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's pretty all-inclusive. That covers all the bases. So this is really the cosmic battle against the persistence of evil in this world that is constantly trying to undo what God has done, trying to undo God's creation. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Now here, Habakkuk physically has an anxiety attack. Like, the weight of this situation is hitting him again. Um, He accepts the revelation, and he's starting to freak out because he knows that it's true. Um, and when we grasp that too, our natural reaction is to fear. And it just really reinforces the fact, the truth, that we are going to have trials. We are going to have problems in this world. They're going to be continual. Uh, we'll face accusations of the enemy, uh, trials of life, broken relationships. But the reason for this song, again, is he's writing to remind people that one day things are going to be made right. So even though we face all of these challenges today, there'll be a day when everything will be made right and we can rejoice in that fact. It says, yet I will quietly wait for the trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I think it's interesting because this hasn't even happened yet. Like the people are coming. The Babylonians are coming. They haven't even gotten here yet. And he said, you know what? I'm going to wait for God's judgment to come on them. He's already skipping to the end. I like that because we can skip to the end and see what happens in the story. God has won. We win. And so sometimes flipping to the end 
is a good thing to do and remind ourselves that while things may seem difficult now or seem things that we know are coming are going to be difficult, ultimately, we're going to be victorious. We're more than conquerors. Last week, we touched on the phrase in chapter 2, the righteous shall live by his faith. And the portion right here that we're about to read uh, is really where the rubber meets the road. And it's verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is to the choir master with the stringed instruments. Um, Habakkuk's now in a place where he can accept the revelation and accept God's judgment. But when he sees that his suffering is going to take place because of the sin of other people, he starts to fear. Um, And I think that we can all relate to that. When we are in a situation where we're going to feel pain because of other people's mistakes, we start to fear a little bit because that's outside of our control. But what he's saying is if the path to redemption is through suffering, then we can endure that in faith. Like if that is the way to you, God, then I can endure. Uh, We can endure as followers of Christ. We can endure in this life because we know that it is the path that leads us to him ultimately, the redemption of our souls and the redemption of our bodies. This is a hard one to grapple with. That's why I started with the introduction of why is evil allowed to persist in this world? Like, why does it still exist? And God allows it to exist to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Uh, For now, it's allowed to persist. Um, And sometimes those purposes are to judge or to correct. Uh, And the reason that I wanted to talk about it at the beginning is because it's important that we have a right view of God. Because If our view of God is not right, then our faith is going to be unstable. Um, It's not going to be on solid ground if our view of God um, is skewed. Because believing in a warrior creator God has two possible outcomes. Either he can defeat your enemies or he can defeat you. Like, God will either fight for you or God will fight against you. Uh, The Israelites were defeated because in their rebellion, they had wandered away from God. They were wallowing in their sin. And if we persist in rebellion, then he is going to defeat us. But he does it for your sake. Like, that's the hard thing, right? Like, why would the Babylonians, why would God allow the Babylonians to come in and defeat us and carry us off into exile? God's plan was not to destroy them. It was to bring his people's hearts back to him. And so sometimes it feels like God's will is crushing us when in reality, he is bringing us back to himself. He wants our hearts to be close from him, not to wander. If we walk humbly with the Lord, he will fight for us. I'd much rather he be fighting for me than against me. Um, You know, Jacob, says Jacob wrestled with God or Jacob fought with God. Um, And that's what we call uh, theophany where, uh, you know, it's a physical presence of Jesus in the Old Testament when he came to Jacob and he started wrestling with him. And at the end of it, they wrestle all night. And Jacob has, you know, 
grabbed hold of him and he says, you need to let me go because daylight's breaking. And just to show him that while he had wrestled with him all night, he was truly overpowered. All he did was touch his hip and it came out of joint. And then he had a limp for the rest of his life. Yes, he wrestled with God. He did fight with God, but he had something to remember it by for the rest of his life. And if we try to rebel and fight against God, I guarantee we're going to have a limp, something to remind ourselves of it for the rest of our lives. So I'd rather walk humbly with him and have him fight for me than fight against me. And so he's speaking prophetically of what God has given him. I'm going to wait for trouble to come upon them. So we praise God in the good times, but also in the bad times. Uh, We serve him in the living as well as in the dying. Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you've heard of him, um, if you haven't, you should look him up. He's an amazing man of God. said this, he said, when God calls us, he bids us to come and die to ourselves. Like when he calls us, he, he bids us to come and die. And that doesn't make sense to the world. doesn't make sense at all. When Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen, I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up to the authorities, and they're going to, they're going to kill me. They couldn't accept it. Like the first couple times, they missed it completely. Like it went right over their heads. But then when they finally get it, and Peter understands, he starts to rebuke Jesus and say, that is not going to happen. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter. And he basically has to say, just paraphrasing, he says, Peter, you're going to have to trust me. Like what's happening that you're not going to understand, you'll understand it later, but right now you're going to have to trust me. And that's what God's telling Habakkuk. I know you don't want to hear this. I know you don't want to deliver this message to the people but you're just going to have to trust me. And when we seek God in prayer, he did. He intentionally went to God in prayer. He didn't like what he heard, but he had to trust him. And we have to show that same trust to God, regardless of what he's telling us. So we have to accept God's judgment, but we also have to accept the consequences of our sin. Um, It's easy to praise God when the cupboards are full, right? When there's plenty. But Difficult to praise God when there's scarcity, when there's nothing, uh, when there's no food on the table, so to speak. Jesus, when he was in the desert and he was being tempted by Satan, he told Satan, he said, listen, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when he said that, he was quoting Deuteronomy 8, where Moses was explaining to the people, he said, God humbled you. And he let you hunger so that you may know the blessing of hearing him speak. Like God humbled you in your rebellion, but he did it to allow you to hunger so that you could experience the blessing of hearing him speak. Basically, in difficult times in life, like we're way more closer to God than we are in the good times when there's plenty, when things are going well. We have a tendency to put it into cruise control instead of staying close to him. So he allows hunger into our life sometimes to keep us close to him. Job said, shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? It drives us to see our need for him anew. I love hymns. There's an old hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it was written in 1773. And here's one of the lines. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Basically, in the midst of a situation that looks dark, that looks threatening, behind that is a God who loves you, that just wants to bring you to him. 
And I'd mentioned this before, but um, you know, when we would teach you know, kids' church, that one of the themes was God's in a good mood. And at the time, I thought that was really corny. Like, God's in a good mood? Like, that's what we're going to teach the kid? But it's true. So we have this skewed perception of God that he is the cosmic killjoy, that he's the fun police, and he doesn't want you to have any fun, and God's in a bad mood, and if you step out of line, he's going to zap you. But it's not true. God's in a good mood. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God when he came here and died on the cross. Okay, almost done. The next, the prophet rejoices in all circumstances. He says, I will rejoice. I will take joy. In remembering who God is and what he's done and what he promises to do, in that we can rejoice. Like we said in Philippians, we have to make the choice to rejoice. We have to make the choice to rejoice. If we change our minds, right, he will change our hearts. That's what we talked about. I mean, just like Paul, Paul and Habakkuk had no reason to rejoice, like at all. But yet both of them here say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of whether or not I feel like I deserve this situation. God is still good and I can still worship him. Mature faith says, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what mature faith says. Immature faith says, God, I really want my will to be done. That's what I'd really like you to do is for my will to be done. But mature faith can say, Lord, regardless of that, I want your will done in my life. Once we get to that spot where we can rejoice in hard times, then we get to experience the gifts of confidence and hope in the Lord like at no other time. Once we get to that place where we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Um, and then he uses this, this picture of deer, of an analogy of a deer skipping on the mountains and being sure-footed. Uh, I love watching nature documentaries. I could watch them like all day long. I love it. My bucket list, like almost number one on my bucket list, is to go scuba diving with a whale. I would love it to do that. That would be pretty sweet. First, I got to take scuba diving lessons. <laughs> but he uses this. Have you guys ever seen these mountain goats? running across these cliffs and standing on ledges that are like that thick. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. But that's what they are designed to do. That's what God built them for, to live on the edge, to live a faith that's on the edge. Um, I saw this picture once. I, you, somebody parked like an old broken down BMW in their backyard, but they had a bunch of goats because it's out in the country, right? And this is where junkers go. And they had a bunch of goats. And the goats are jumping on the car, but that little place where your window is, where the window is on the side of your car, and there's that little tiny, you know, section right there outside. The, the goats are standing right there on the car. It's like God has built, he's hardwired them into their, you know, DNA to walk on the edge. And what God is calling us to do, and what he's saying here is, I want to live a life on the edge that lives in radical faith, that stands in places on purpose, that doesn't make sense to the world. I'm going to stand there, even if I look foolish. And I'm going to stand there and people are going to say, you're crazy. I'm going to say, I don't care. I'm walking in faith. The righteous will live by his faith. And like a deer, I'm going to have sure-footed faith. I'm not going to waver. There was a book that was written um, back in the 50s, very famous allegorical Christian book called Hind's Feet on High Places. And it is the story of a woman called Much Afraid. And she is kind of disfigured and ugly on the outside. And 
she lives with her family. It's called fearing family. And she wants to get away from them. So she leaves her fearing family and she wants to go to the heights where the shepherd is. But she doesn't exactly know how to get there. And she can't walk very good because, you know, she's, you know, a little bit deformed. But as she takes off, uh, she is accompanied by two characters. She's accompanied by sorrow and suffering go along with her. So this is kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, but written from a different perspective because she's wanting to get to the high places where the shepherd is. And so sorrow and suffering, uh, pain and trials go with her. But along the way, they take her through some very dark, very difficult, very scary places on her way up. But by the time she gets there, she's been strengthened. Her feet have been made stable. She's now in a place where she can walk on the high places and get to the shepherd. And we can get to the high places if we let God take us through those times where we have to trust in him, where we have to stand on the ledge. A lot of people want to be in the high places, but they don't necessarily want the shepherd. And they certainly don't want sorrow and suffering. But that's the way that we get there. Habakkuk says, okay, God, you're our, you are the goal. If this is the plan to redemption, then I can endure it because I know your promises. I'm going to rejoice in you. I'm going to keep you as the focus because I know that you're going to strengthen my feet and my faith will be on sure footing. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, in everything give thanks. It doesn't say give thanks for everything. <laughs> it says in everything give thanks. So regardless of the situation, we can give thanks in it to God. There's something to be grateful for. The prophet was in the valley of despair, but now he's on the heights and he's got a broader perspective of what God's doing and he can rejoice. Where we have the, the worship team come back up. Um, there's another minor prophet that's really the most famous one and everybody knows is Jonah, right? Everybody knows Jonah, the minor prophet. Um, it's interesting to parallel these two prophets and their stories, Jonah and Habakkuk. When God told them what was coming, they both did very different things. Jonah, when he found out what was coming, what God said, ran away from God. But Habakkuk, when God told him what was coming, went to the tower. He went to seek God intentionally to see what else he wanted to say. Jonah saw salvation coming to the Gentiles, and he didn't like it. While Habakkuk sees um, sovereignty of God coming through the Gentiles. So Jonah saw God's grace going out. Habakkuk sees God's sovereignty coming down through the Gentiles. Jonah's story ends in foolishness where he's pouting over a shriveled up plant. But Habakkuk ends his story in faith as he sings praises to God, knowing that he's going to strengthen him for what's coming. So what's the difference between these two messengers of God? Habakkuk learned in the tower while Jonah had to learn in the fish. Habakkuk went there intentionally to seek God and get an answer, but Jonah didn't want to hear anymore. So he ran away from God. He had to learn the hard way. And each of us have a choice. We can seek him with determination and expectation in the tower, or we can get tossed around in the storm, wondering, why am I always in the storm? Why is my head always wrapped in seaweed? Why am I always in a dark, cramped place? 
the reason people get caught up in the storm is because they're not in the tower. They don't spend time in the Word or in prayer. So they have sea legs instead of hinds feet. I'd rather have the hinds feet than the sea legs. So the encouragement is be in the tower. Don't learn it in the fish. That's going to be a rough one. God's plan is harder than your plan. God's plan is scarier than your plan. His plan is more complicated than your plan. God's plan is slower than your plan. His plan is better than your plan. Life is full of uncertainty. It's full of brevity. It's short. But thankfully, God has sovereignty. He's in control. And that's really just the message of Habakkuk. We need to live by faith. We need to trust in His sovereignty. And in His time, things will be restored. That is the message of Habakkuk and what we can take with us as we live That's a comforting thought in the middle of a crazy world that we live in. Every time I turn on the news or I see it online, comfort in the fact that he's in control. And one day, I don't even know if it's going to be a memory. <laughs> I think all those things are going to be washed away. When we get into eternity, all we're going to remember is his goodness. There's not going to be any tears in heaven. So how would we remember all of this junk that's going on that would make us sad? It's all just going to be crazy him. 